Welcome back to the show, everybody. It is Maddie and Ethan with another episode of the Vine to Mind podcast. And on this episode of the show, we are going to talk about the progression of wine styles in our home, the Napa Valley. We hope you enjoy. So Ethan, I think it was like a couple episodes ago, we were talking about the sheep and Mm -hmm. we had mentioned the mustard and that was in full bloom here in Napa Valley. Well, I know you've probably noticed it, but within the past couple of weeks, that is gone. No, there's still some mustard. I still think people are leaving them outside so uh, people can take pictures and Instagram their winery in the background. Um, But yeah, most of it's gone. I haven't seen sheep in a while. No, because I think, you know, it's right around the corner. Bud break? Bud break, yes. Bud break is coming. Spring has essentially sprung. We have longer days now. Oh, it's so nice. I know. And, you know, we also have, like, really soon, we have Easter. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so a great, I mean, obviously, great holiday, but also a great excuse to make some good food, open up some fun wine. Uh-huh. So, I don't know. I mean, I think of, like, classic Easter dishes. I don't know. For me and my family, it was either lamb or ham. Do you do the mint gel? With the lamb? The jelly? Yeah, the mint uh, jelly. No. Oh, I, I, I know. I just started having that the last few years, and I think it's essential. I think it's essential. Uh, I can appreciate it, uh-huh. but I very much do not think it's essential. Okay. I think well, you we can, can have agree some others. to disagree. And okay. We don't really need more excuses to open fun wines. I think you and I do it regularly, but I think there's still so much nostalgia behind holidays and being able to open something really fun. And something that we don't open all the time to have with our, you know, some of the classic dishes. So you mentioned lamb. Mm-hmm. Three wines you would pair with lamb for Three Easter. Three wines. And actually, I think I'm going to do a little like herb crusted rack of lamb on mm. Easter. So I need to wow. go shopping for that. But I do have a few wines and I'm glad you brought this up because I'm trying to figure out what to open. I do have a bottle of St. Joseph at home. Okay. So, you know, Northern Rhone. So Syrah. And, you you know, it's a very pretty uh, style in that, too. Um, Got a little bit of that funk, too, that sometimes you get in Rhone wines. But um, I was also thinking a Chinon would be really nice. So a Cabernet Franc coming from the Loire Valley. You know, sometimes lamb has that little bit of gaminess to it too so i think you get something an old world style of wine specifically a red wine that has a little bit of that funk like i said you know sometimes cabernet franc has that pyrazine character too Uh so uh, maybe a chinon northern rhone syrah or a right bank i think that would be nice i don't want something too heavy i don't want that to overpower exactly kind of the delicate uh structure the lamb but i don't know we'll see i think those are great options because like you said lamb's pretty delicate but you're doing the herb crust and you just named three wines that could be a little herbal in their own you know particular way um great wines let me know how it goes sure sure so what are you gonna have on easter well i mean we're gonna talk about lamb so let's do honey baked ham one of my favorites okay so um of course you got the honey glaze on it so you got a little sweetness ham could be a little on the fattier side for the meats I'm thinking I want to do some white. You know me with white. Of whites. course you do. Alsatian Riesling. They got a little bit more yes. body to it. You know, okay. it's got that acidity that will help cut through some of that fat. Pairs really well with that honey. I'm also thinking maybe, possibly, a rosé. I mean, it's getting nicer outside. Maybe a nice Provence rosé with some of that herb to Provence and that acidity again. But if I'm doing red wine, Maddie, I can stay local. I could do like a Dry Creek Zinfandel. Maybe a fun old vine one. There's so many options. But you can guarantee I'm going to open a good one for Easter. Well, Ethan, I think you have some great options. You may just have to pop them all open. It's going to be like me and one other person. 
Hey, I can make it happen. Though. Hey, up to the challenge. <laughs> All right. So Ethan, I I was really excited when we decided to talk about Napa Valley mm-hmm. today. And obviously we've called this place home for a number of years now, but <laughs> I think it might've been a very ambitious idea to talk about Napa Valley in one episode. I mean, we can have like a whole lecture series on just the history of Napa. Exactly, exactly. So that's why we started thinking about this. Like, what should we actually talk about? And what is Napa known for? Of course, it's known for wine, but it's known for Cab, right? Cabernet Sauvignon is king. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to this day, Cabernet is the most widely planted grape in the entire world. Yeah. In California, I think it's around 15% or so of the entire California harvest. In Napa Valley, we are just shy of 50% of all vineyard acreage, but it accounts for nearly 70% of the harvest value every year. Well, if you want to make money out here, you grow cab. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Um, But it hasn't always been that way. Okay. And I think it's incredibly fascinating to tell the story of how Napa got to this place and how the wine styles and the grape varieties have evolved over the years. So Maddie... How did it get this way? (laughs) Okay. Because obviously it started when grapes were first planted in California. I'm assuming it started with Father Junipero, right? With the missions? Yeah, exactly. So that's when the first grapes were planted in California. You started seeing these missions popping up all throughout the state. And of course, they needed the wine for sacramental reasons. And so they started planting what we now refer to as the mission grape. Also known as Liston Prieto for my great synonym buffs out there. Exactly. Yes. This is actually what they think is the first Vitis vinifera grape to come to North America. It's originally from Spain. They brought it to Mexico. And then as the mission started spreading, that's what they were planting. All right. So, you know, eventually this changed. You know, now you look throughout the entire state of California where vines are planted. It's all European varieties. So when did this whole transition occur? Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, it was really in the 1800s. And of course, 1838 is when they think that grapes, wine grapes are first planted in Napa Valley. That was by George Yaunt. And then shortly thereafter, you started seeing some European varieties make their way to Northern California. And somebody, one person in particular was credited with bringing a lot of European grape varieties over to Sonoma County, actually. That was Horothy. Yes, exactly. From Buena Vista. Yeah, Augustin Horosti. He traveled to Europe and brought over for like 250 different grape varieties to California and was really one of the first people to see what what styles and what grape varieties thrive in California and in this climate. So I'm trying to imagine some guy just, what, he took a boat over with 250 grapes? <laughs> different grapes? I, I, obviously, he probably had like clippings, but... Yeah, I actually heard that he spent a lot of money in doing so, and it didn't really pay off um, right off the bat either. But no, but he, I mean, it's good that he did it. You know, people, you know, eventually started introducing the varieties that we know and love today. So someone had to do it. <laughs> I think there's still people that bring clippings over. Yeah, exactly. Europe, there's there's some more funny. regulations, I think, now, but um, I'm sure it happens too. But, um, but yeah, but that was, so that's like mid 1800s, but yeah. also at this time, I think think if anybody knows anything about California wine or history in general, you know what was also going on. And this was the gold rush, right? 1849, California was booming. You're absolutely right. It's crazy how fast people found out about the gold rush. I mean, this is a different time. There's no social media. There's, I mean, there's, there's newspapers, but I mean, people are coming from all around the world, but especially a lot of European immigrants that were already living in the United States on the East Coast, they started moving out to the West Coast in hopes of striking it rich with the gold. So they brought their winemaking practices 
and their viticultural practices out here and established a lot of these same techniques that we use today. Am I right? You're absolutely right, Ethan. And you know, a lot of these grapes too, that they were planting were grapes such as like Zinfandel. Zinfandel at the time, like you said, Cap is king now. Back in the 1800s, Zinfandel was king. So all throughout Napa Valley at this time, you started seeing the Mission grape being dug up, and then you started seeing Zinfandel being planted, and also even Riesling. Now, to this day, you don't see a ton of Riesling in Napa. There are some producers that make beautiful Riesling that I know you and I both are big fans of. But at the time, you know, we have a lot of Swiss German immigrants coming to Napa Valley, and they're planting what they're familiar with at the time. You know, it's funny. Back in the day, they would call it white Riesling. It's always been a white grape. I don't think there's any kind of like you red. You even had or... red Riesling? I have not. Have you? <laughs> I'd love to try it. Just kidding. So at this point, the wine industry in Napa Valley is just booming. I mean, there's over 200 wineries, 20,000 acres of vines planted. What happened? Yeah, exactly. And Ethan, those numbers are numbers that we're not going to see again in Napa until the 1980s. That's crazy. Because at this point, of course, we've all heard about it, phylloxera. It has struck Europe, now it's hitting the U.S., and it's just devastating the industry out here. And with that, too, um, you know, phylloxera, people are having to replant their vines. They don't really know what exactly is going on, but finally, once they realize that they can graft onto American rootstocks, well, they're going to dig up all these vines and plant what they want to plant. And so this is when really the mission grape goes bye-bye. And we start planting, you know, other grapes. And this is when Zinfandel really starts to take precedent in Napa Valley. And at this point, you start seeing some higher quality. People are thinking about that when they're planting these vines. And it's looking hopeful for Napa Valley. But then we have a number of events that take place, including World War I. And then we all know what happens in 1920, right? (laughs) The start of Prohibition. Exactly. And then at the end of that, it's the Great Depression and then World War II. I mean, that's crazy that where we're at where we are right now from everything Napa Valley has gone through. Oh, for sure. I know. We've seen a lot of hardships over the years. And I think it's really important that we talk about what happened during Prohibition. You know, we, you had just said there were like around 200 wineries that were in existence at the end of the 1800s. There were about 10 or so that were able to stay open through Prohibition. And the only reason they were able to do so was because they were able to, you know, make wine for the church, right? Um, Some people were just growing grapes just for local consumption and whatnot, table grapes. Other people were making or growing grapes to send back to the East Coast so that people could have their their home juice or your home wine for your your own personal use. I think it's funny that you were allowed to make your own wine at home back in the day. Well, you weren't really supposed to, but... (laughs) That's funny. So that obviously is going to change what people want to plant out here because you're going to need something that's a little bit more durable to make it across the East Coast. And I know that Riesling and some other grapes, they're not the most durable grapes to put on a train with no temperature control (laughs) and send it on a three-day trip back to the East Coast. So what became the more popular grape planted? Yeah, exactly. Um, You started seeing grapes such as like Alicante Boucher, there was Zinfandel, Petit Syrah, Carignan. These varieties are what they called suitcase or shipper varieties because they were a little bit more durable, a little bit more hardy, the skins were a little thicker, and so they could withstand this long trek back to the East Coast. And typically they'd be in like these brick concentrates with a lot of sulfur to make sure they lasted all the way back. That's hilarious. You know, it's funny, a lot of these grapes are very similar to... Zinfandel, like how they look. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of like these famous like field blends, especially still out in like Sonoma, 
you know, even though they're based off of Zinfandel, a lot of them still have these like shipper grapes in them because I mean, they're all planted back in the day and no one really cared what was going in the vineyard. So you could find like Zin mixed with Alicante Boucher and the Carignan and the Petit Syrah. And a lot of times it's just called like just Zinfandel or just a field blend of Zinfandel. I think that's fun. I think it's fun that there's still these heritage grape blends that still exist oh for sure and at the time too i'm sure the folks on the east coast were just so happy to find any grapes too so they didn't they didn't even know what alicante boucher was but they're just like yes grapes and i'm sure the style back then you kind of think about it these grapes were probably over harvested i mean there was probably a lot per acre what back then because people just want to grow it's more about the quantity back then not necessarily about necessarily the quality so a lot of the style i'm assuming ends up being sort of like these really big wines, probably some RS left on them, higher in alcohol. It's just things that you can drink at home. Yeah, exactly. And even quality really, it took a long time for Napa to achieve high quality wines again. And I think it's interesting to note because of prohibition and then moving into World War II and whatnot, a lot of things happened to American culture and the American palate. And so at this point in time, I mean, the American palate was not super complex. People like sweet things. They like things that are a little more simple. And when it comes to wine styles, for one, I mean, they like sweet and probably higher in alcohol, just like you were alluding to earlier, like sportified wines almost. Sometimes they refer to these as like stickies, right? Mm -hmm. But also just people weren't drinking that much wine in general. I mean, kitchens were getting smaller. People wanted more convenience. There was like, you know, the TV dinners and whatnot. There wasn't, there wasn't anything, like any meals were not centered around a bottle of wine necessarily. So at some point, there was a quality revolution. Yes, but that did not happen for quite some time at this point. And you started seeing, you know, in the 40s and in the 50s, you started seeing people wanting to come out to Napa Valley and saw the potential. You know, they, they had heard about what Napa used to be, and this was a time to invest. And so you started seeing some producers come out here and start experimenting with, you know, different grape varieties. You had like H.W. Crabb, who had purchased Tokalon and who was trying to decide what grape varieties would do well and yeah. whatnot. And this is when you start seeing more and more European grape varieties taking precedent here in the Napa Valley. So he, H.W. Crabb, he spent a lot of money on the Tokalon vineyard. And he was planting like things like Tanat there. Yeah, exactly. I know. He was way ahead of his time. And I should have noted him back in um, the 1800s. He was an 1800s guy, but he was really, you know, a pioneer. And he saw the vision for where we were going in Napa Valley. But, um, but you know, you had estates like Inglenook that were popping up around this time, really producing just, you know, high quality wines for the time. You're absolutely right, Maddie. And this at the same time, Andre Telechev comes to the Valley. You know, he was a graduate from the Pasteur Institute. He brought a lot of new, innovative smart approaches to winemaking, like using French oak barrels, introducing like temperature controlling and when it comes to winemaking, how bacteria affects your wine. He did a lot to help the quality evolve in the valley. Absolutely. Things are really starting to turn around, I think, for Napa at this point. And Ethan, I feel like a lot of this information that we've been talking about up until this point, we've, you and I have talked about this a lot in the past. We've led presentations about Napa Valley. And I think Lately, I've just been so fascinated with this. So I've been trying to go a little bit deeper. And so I've been reading the book, Napa Valley Then and Now. You've probably seen me lug this guy around. It's about six inches thick. It's this an book impressive is, book. If you guys haven't seen it, it's by Kelly White. And it is just a wealth of information. She goes into detail about some really iconic producers here in Napa and just how Napa came to be. And one thing when I was reading this book that I noted um, that I just thought was really just kind of a crazy statistic. Um, if we look at the early 1960s, at this point in time, 
There are about 10,000 acres planted in Napa Valley. That is less than half of what we had back in the late 1800s. So we are still, we still have a long ways to go at this point. And also only 6% of the acreage accounted for Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir. So were the other grapes just the shipper varieties? Exactly. But not for long. You know, at this point, again, like you were saying, everything's kind of like building on top of itself and Napa's about to just boom again. And so in the 60s, of course, we can't talk about Napa Valley in this time without mentioning Robert Mondavi. And he was really a huge advocate for the Valley and really bringing wine back to the dinner table. You had people like Julia Child, too, that really romanticized European culture and just being centered around wine. And so at this point in time, that starts to come back into the culture in the U.S., And finally, in 1967, this became the very first year since Prohibition that dry wine was more popular than fortified wine. That's crazy. It's a long time. That is. So as you mentioned, at this point, wine is slowly and steadily getting back onto the dinner tables. Wine's becoming a little bit more popular. The quality is getting a little bit better. People are focusing on higher quality wines. But then the 1970s happened. And this was like the golden era. This was the gold rush, per se, for wine in the Napa Valley, especially in like the mid-1970s. 1975, we all know, Bob Trincaro creates the White Zinfandel. And then a year just after that, 1976, Chateau Montalena, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, they win the Paris tasting. And at this point, now people are, they're noticing Napa Valley. They're noticing wine. Wine's fun again. Wine's cool. Wine is good. And everybody should be drinking it at this point. The 70s were such a great era for Napa Valley wine, but that's not the end of all of it. The style has changed from there, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, Ethan, you you nailed it on the head there. The 70s, this was the golden era. Finally, Napa has a name for itself. People are now traveling out here because the wines are so notable. We are recognized on the world stage. And the wines here are very are made in that older world style, I guess you could say. They're incredibly age-worthy. Of course, they're still fruit-driven, but um, they're very complex somewhat lower in alcohol, I'd say like 12 and a half to 13 and a half percent or so. But, um, but yeah, the style is, it's about to change a little bit. And that's from a few different reasons too. Um, in the mid seventies, I think a lot of us have heard of Andy Beckstoffer, right? Um, he has done amazing things for vineyard work out here. He's got some very notable vineyards uh, that he farms out here, but he introduced drip irrigation to the Napa Valley in the seventies here. At the time, this was not widely used. Um, and so it actually, it brought a lot of opportunities because, you know, of course, dry farming can be great in some areas, but some areas also need some irrigation from Absolutely. time to time. And so he brought this and in the later seventies, and I think it was in like 76, 77, there was a drought in Napa Valley. And so because of this, a lot of people ended up putting drip irrigation in, which was fine. Yeah. But then it got to the point in the eighties where a lot of people have drip irrigation and they are also going to use that a little bit more. It's kind of like almost like using a new toy, right? They got exactly. really excited. They used it a lot and they realized they use more of that. They can have higher yields. So you started getting some more plump, um, probably like more tonnage per acre at this time too. Yeah. You also have an unfortunate event in the eighties too, when phylloxera comes back. Oh geez. Yeah. So phylloxera comes back in the late eighties, early nineties. So people are replanting, but they're not just replanting Ethan. They are going to look at, you know, you know, we're making Bordeaux varieties and Bordeaux styles of wine here. So we're going to look to Bordeaux, France and see what they're doing, right? We could probably make like a whole series of movies based off Phylloxera, like Phylloxera 2, Return of the Phylloxera. (laughs) 
honestly though, um, gosh, I hope it doesn't come back like it has in the past, <laughs> but, um, but no. So at this point in time though, we're looking to Bordeaux and what is, you know, Bordeaux is of course in France, yeah. um, Bordeaux experiences a maritime climate. They use VSP, which is vertical shoot positioning, which is the way that they trellis their vines in order to maximize the sunlight. And they do this in order to maximize it because it's a cooler climate. But exactly. here in Napa Valley, um, we thought we need to do the same. So we're doing VSP. We now have drip irrigation. We're doing all these aspects to maximize ripeness, right? But we really don't need to do that. We have enough sun here. But at the time, you know, it's it's producing more tonnage, I guess you could say. So at the 80s, I feel like we're a little bit of like a lull period. It wasn't quite as amazing as the 70s. Yeah. But then we have um, the 90s. And you start seeing some other factors take precedent in the 90s um, that become really popular, like Wine Spectator and Wine mm -hmm. Advocate. You know, they'd been around for a few years at this point, but now in the 90s, People are really watching um, who they're rating and what these scores mean. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense why we were doing certain practices like that back then. You know, we had an adolescent wine industry here. You know, we're trying to learn. We're trying to learn from our bigger brother, you know, Bordeaux per se. So it makes sense that we would copy a lot of things that they do. I mean, they've been making great wines for hundreds of years. Why wouldn't we want to do the same thing that they do? But we've actually had a great honor to try a lot of 1970s and 1980s wines. And we've tried a good amount of Zinfandels from that time. And you kind of see that old world style that you mentioned, Maddie. Like they still have a nice acidity. They're still vibrant and juicy and very much alive. Still have a little bit of fruit on them. They still have that like, little bit of that earthy character. Also, we've seen some of the opposite end of the spectrum where you have wines that are almost 16% alcohol, but they're sweet, but they're made to be sweet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not so much for Cab. <laughs> no. So you mentioned the 90s and... Some great things happen to Napa Valley wines, but there's a huge shift in style, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was it was an interesting from what I've read and whatnot and what I've um, heard. It's been interesting to see how we achieved this style in Napa too. Um, finally, in the '90s, Cab became, I guess you could say, king, right? Now, mm -hmm. finally, this is the most planted grape in Napa Valley, and it, you know it hadn't changed dramatically in style. And then in the late '90s, um, in '97, there was a really large vintage. And it actually um, was so large that a lot of the grapes had sat on the vines a little bit longer than they normally would have. So you bring them in um, and that bricks is a little bit higher, which means that the alcohol is going to be higher. You're going to get these really intense fruity aromas, right? Um, well, that was in 1997 and those wines were not released until a few years later. So yeah. that vintage, when that was released, say in like 2000 or so, man, did those get big scores. Uh, people loved those because they're big, they're juicy, and they're, this is America, right? You know, that was the style. Big wines, big scores. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so that really just dramatically shaped how so many producers were making their Cabernet. It was really in order to get maybe a score or maybe to, you know, the consumer liked that at the time, but that didn't last that long. Yeah. I, in 2007, there was really a turning point where people just flipped a switch. It was like, okay, too much is too much. Let's go back and let's kind of refine it. But, you know, I think it's important to note though, that I think, it, you know, Napa is really coming into its own. Mm -hmm. We've just kind of walked through the last several decades and there's been these big turning points and we're still living through that. I feel like we are such a young wine industry at this point 
And there's a little something for everybody. You know, if you like that bigger style with a little bit higher alcohol, more power to you. Exactly. You know, there are still producers that produce wine that way, and that's great. But you're also seeing a lot kind of take a step back and maybe maybe they pick earlier or maybe they do different practices or whatnot to, you know, to please everyone out there. You know, I think that's the real fun part about being out here and being able to try Napa Valley wines is that there's a lot of producers and they all make a different style of wine. And, you know, Cab is still very much king. I don't think I see that changing anytime soon. And we're going to still see a change in styles of these Cabernets. Mm -hmm. I'm excited. Cabernet is one of my favorite wines. They're all so different. Absolutely. I know. And it really does speak to the terroir too. And I think that's one thing too. This is another podcast for another day, but I think it's exciting to see all the sub AVAs in Napa Valley and those styles really coming out instead of it just being a Napa cab. Yeah. Oh no, this is a cab from Mount Beter versus Spring Mountain mm. or St. Helena or whatever it might yeah. be. Um, I was actually, when preparing for this, I wanted to look at the average cost per ton for these yeah. grapes. And so I went onto the crush report and I just think this is fascinating for any of you guys who maybe are interested in this too. Um, I looked at 2019's report. I know 2020 had a lot of variables. So I went to 2019 and the average cost for one ton of Napa Cabernet was $7,900. So to put this in a reference, folks, one ton, give or take, will yield about two barrels of wine, give or take. And that means it's about 50 cases or so. So that's one of the reasons that Cab in Napa is not exactly cheap typically, but that is for Napa Cabernet. So Napa, that's typically one of the most expensive grape varieties, obviously. Yeah. Cabernet Franc, Ethan, that went for $9,250 a ton. Get out of here. So that's another thing, too. I love me some Cabernet Franc. I know. That's not so easy to grow in the vineyard. It's not. But it's becoming more and more popular. And when you have a great Cabernet Franc, it definitely shows, too. Exactly. So at this point, I think it's, you know, it's very exciting to see where Napa is going. I hope that was a kind of a fun journey for you guys to see Napa Valley you know, back in the 1800s into where we are now and where we're going in the future. It's going to be very fascinating to see what happens. I'm looking forward to it. I love Cabernet. I've really grown to appreciate some Cabernet and I'm excited for us to continue to build our Napa identity. You know, Maddie, this has been great. Some wonderful information here, but I have a question for you. What's that? What's your favorite AVA for Cab? Do you have one? Oh goodness. Mountain or Valley? I think it's honestly, it's a mood thing, Ethan. Yeah. I love, I've been up to a number of wineries up on Spring Mountain. I was going to say the same thing. Oh man, <laughs> we spend too much time together. Um, I love Spring Mountain, but I mean, also you have AVAs like Oakville that are, I mean, obviously highly respected and for good reason too. Coonsville makes some great cabs. They do. And it's beautiful over there too. I mean, this whole valley is, but. So just drink more Cabernet from Napa Valley folks. But I mean, there's so much more to than Cabernet as well. There's Cabernet-based blends. You're starting to see like Malbec grown out here. Maddie and I's favorite. There's more and more Sauvignon Blanc every <laughs> single year. And there's a great variation in styles of wines now. Yeah, Ethan, it's just an exciting time out here. So many producers are now having fun with either the styles of cab they're making, but also so many other great varieties. And there's a lot of freedom out here. Guys, just drink more Napa wine. You know, before we sign off for today and get to our nightcap, um, I do want to mention Chardonnay because... We talked about the king, Cab, but the queen of Napa Valley is Chardonnay. So does that make Sauvignon Blanc the princess? 100%. <laughs> Cab Franc is the prince. Well, Ethan, Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc made Cabernet Sauvignon. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Regardless, back to my point. Uh, Chardonnay has seen 
sort of an evolution in style as well lately. Have you noticed that? Mm-hmm. They used to be like big and rich and creamy and buttery, but there's a lot of producers that are dialing it back and putting less oak, less malolactic fermentation, really allowing Chardonnay to become like a mineral-driven Chablis style. I love it because you know how much I love drinking Chablis. I'm excited to see more of that too. That's a whole other podcast for another day. Yeah, we can spend another 40 yeah. minutes talking <laughs> You guys about don't want to listen to us that much right now. So let's get into tonight's nightcap. And I think today, instead of talking about wine, I want to talk about spirits. And Maddie, I know <laughs> you're like the team mixologist. You get really creative with your cocktails. What has been your cocktail lately? Because I always love to hear about your cocktails because Maddie and I tend to agree on a lot of things. The one thing we do not agree on is how we treat our spirits. I drink mine completely neat with nothing mixed into it. You make those cool cocktails. To be fair, I'm not like all like the frou-frou cocktails well, too. No, you're I not making like Mai Tais and stuff. Fair. <laughs> uh, let's see. You know, lately, Ethan, it's been bad. On the weekends, it's almost like it's like a Saturday night thing as espresso martinis. Oh, how do you make yours? So good. Um, well, of course, if I have my hands in espresso vodka, that would be ideal. If not, you know, Tito's is fine. But typically two ounces of vodka, I'll do an ounce and a half of espresso and then an ounce of Kahlua and an ounce of Bailey's. Shake it up with some ice. And of course, you got to garnish it with three beans. Oh, stop. What do you pair it with? Do you pair it? Uh, you don't need anything with it. <laughs> that Ooh. is dessert in a glass right there. That sounds amazing. It's really good. So I know you don't do the uh, the whole mixology thing, Ethan. So uh, what snobby drinker are you sipping on right now? Okay, thanks for setting it up <laughs> like that. Uh, I have been drinking. I've gotten really into Brandy de Jerez. Oh. So it's made in the same area that Sherry's made. It's actually based off of Aaron, a little bit of Palomino. It's absolutely delicious. Those who like cognacs or armagnacs, it's very similar to it. Um, but it still has like a little bit of that, like salty Sherry character, which is amazing. So that's what I've been drinking. Not every night. On special nights, That's like good. Friday evening, I'll totally be sipping on some of that. But That sounds like a great nightcap. I think we have to work out a trade one of these days. I like that idea. Well, folks, we really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for sticking with us. We really hope you get to enjoy some delicious wine, whether it's a beautiful Napa Valley Cabernet or it's just a box Chardonnay, like what my mom likes to enjoy. <laughs> but anyway, thanks again for joining us for the Vine to Mine podcast. 